Amen. All right, let's go Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, if you have a Bible, grab that real quick. I think it's okay to, to run across the house and get it. I mean, come on, your house isn't that big. It won't take you that long to, to go get your Bible. So we're not going anywhere. You got time. Uh, uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, we'll put the text for, our mo- uh, for this morning up on your screen in just a moment. Uh, and so we've got that for you. But if you have a Bible of your own, man, I just think that God uses that in a special way. I think he uses it in a special way as we hold his word in our hands as it's being declared. I think he's good to us in that way. And so if you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't have a Bible of your very own, if you don't, if you don't have one that you can call your Bible, give me a call this week. I'd love to, to try to fix that. We got a whole bunch of Bibles around here that aren't being used right now. And I would love to even mail you one. All right. And so if you have a Bible, grab it and turn to Philippians chapter two, Philippians chapter two. So we are in the middle now of a series that we're calling the gospel is a blank. The gospel is a blank. And the idea that we're go, running with here is that we're going to fill in that blank with a different word or phrase every single week. Um, it's, uh, it's the premise that's driving this whole series for us is, is that I, I think that one of the best ways to, to illustrate or give picture to what God is doing with the gospel is to talk about it like it's a diamond, a diamond. And everybody kind of gets uh, the, the picture of what a diamond's supposed to be. It's meant to, it's meant to be kind of held up with awe and, and enjoyed and marveled at and all those kinds of things. The diamond is something to be held. Um, and that's the entire point of a diamond. It's meant to, to be enjoyed, to celebrate what God has done and the gift that he has given, right? And so... Um, Diamonds are, are cut with, with facets, uh, different faces. The correct way to, to look at a diamond, uh, we've all kind of seen it, is to kind of hold it up and spin that sucker around, right? Ooh, have you seen it from this angle? Ooh, have you seen it from this angle? Ah, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so um, you spin it around, you look at it from all the different angles. And the facets, they're not in competition with each other. They serve one another, right? They, they amplify and, and hold up and, and encourage one another. You, to take in a diamond correctly is to look at it and be in awe of all the possible ways of looking at it. They play off of each other and combine efforts to elevate the beauty and elevate the value of the whole gem. And the gospel, I think, is the same way. Multiple facets that can and should be celebrated. Not, not in competition with each other. We're not picking our favorite over the other. We're not, not, there's not one that's uh, super important. All the others just don't matter. They all elevate and, and are compatible with each other. Right? And so um, it's meant to, to deepen our awe, though, as we look at all the different facets, all the different faces. This gospel diamond is meant to deepen our awe of God, the giver of this gift, and the gift that he has has given. And so back in week one of this series, we, we looked at the very first facet. We looked at how the gospel is a promised reality, a promised reality, that, it was, uh, that, that God is not making this stuff up as he goes. He's acting on an eternal plan rooted in his own eternal wisdom. Dying on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, wasn't some surprise ending to Jesus' otherwise cute little incarnation story. Jesus came for the purpose of dying. This was a promised reality. It was his his plan from before the foundation of the world. He wasn't just, you know, he wasn't shooting dice here. He wasn't figuring it out as he goes. No, he had a plan and he acted on that plan. Nothing could even slow down that plan, let alone stop it. No, remember, we know, those of you who know your Bibles well, he laid his life down of his own accord, right? No one could take his life from him. And then after that, we looked at how the gospel is also a narrative, a real story. 
involving real people in a real place at a real moment in history. Not some moral parable to to try to emulate in some way, but a real moment in time and space that forever affects time and space. And then on Easter Sunday, we, we got to celebrate that the gospel is a transaction. A transaction that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection actually accomplished something. Actually accomplished something. It was a cosmic trade. He takes from you your sin and the penalty that is owed for that sin, and in return, he gives you his own perfect righteousness. It's a cosmic trade. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, that sounds like a really unfair trade, you're absolutely right. It is an incredibly unfair trade. It's the most unfair trade ever. It's the most unfair trade in the history of trades. It's also one of the key reasons why God deserves to be praised and adored and worshipped forever. Isn't he merciful? Isn't he good? Isn't he mighty to save? We celebrate God because he did what none of us, you or I, would have ever traded for. He is good. Then week three, a couple Sundays ago, we we spun the diamond again and got to admire it from the relationship angle. We said that the gospel is a family identity. That if you are a Christian, you have been adopted as a son or daughter of the king, right? A son or daughter of the king. Not because because we're deserving, not because we've earned some kind of status with him, but because he is good, because he is the good father who makes himself available. Uh, Because uh, as the good father, he stands up and says, I'll be the one. I'll own this. I'll be the one to stand up and provide. I'll be the one to take care of you. I will be the one to go to costly lengths to make you mine. Follower of Jesus, you have been adopted into God's family. You have complete and unfettered access to your Father, secured to you by Jesus' work on your behalf, Jesus' work for you. This also means that you have brothers and sisters in Christ given to you to walk with on this journey. The gospel is a family identity. And then last week, like, like, like last week, we looked at how the gospel is also a mission. That God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That sounds really noble until you get to the next part. We are ambassadors for God. That sounds even more noble. We look past the mere fleshly realities surrounding us and we lovingly press in and implore people, plead with people to be reconciled to God through Jesus. We are on the clock here and there's work to be done. And so we lovingly and joyfully engage. We, we go after them for the sake of them knowing Jesus. But oh, church family, as great as those facets are, the gospel diamond can yet be spun again this morning. And so what, what's the angle that we get to admire this week? The gospel is a present reality. A present reality. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, well, wait a second now. We spent a whole lot of time in this series so far talking about past tense realities. 
past tense realities. We talked about eternal promises being fulfilled in real moments in time and space, right? We talked about a cosmic trade uh, that has occurred and there's nothing left to be done. I don't need to come to, to Jesus. I don't need to bring anything to God in order to please him because the penalty for my sin has been forever washed away by the sacrificial death of Jesus and I'm now clothed in his perfect righteousness. Those are past tense realities. What do you mean that the gospel is a present tense reality? And make no mistake, the Bible definitely speaks to the gospel in the past tense. It's definitely something that has happened to you. I mean, th just think Ephesians 2, right? The greatest chapter in the greatest book of the Bible. Paul says, uh, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience. Uh, the spirit... Sons of disobedience, um, among whom uh, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, the, be the best but God I can ever think of, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's Ephesians 2, right? And I don't know if you noticed that, but there's a whole long list of past tense words in that little paragraph. Most notably, the last little phrase, you have been saved. It wasn't something that, you know, we were building a little something awesome and then God stepped in and, and finished off our work for us. He stepped in at the last moment and helped us get all the way there. The Bible, the Bible says that we are spiritually dead, lifeless, and incapable of doing anything about our problem. Follower of Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus because someone outside of you resuscitated you. Past tense. Past tense. God has accomplished something in you. He, uh, on your behalf, he, he reconciled you to himself through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. He called you to himself through his regenerative work in your heart. He brought you to life. The Bible is crystal clear that the gospel is a past tense reality. It's just also really clear that it's also a present tense reality. A present tense reality, too. See, not only is salvation something that has been done to you, it's also something that is being done to you. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a church in the northern city of a northern Greek city of Philippi. All right, um, it's officially known as the letter to the Philippians. That's why we, uh, it's really simple in how we name things. And Philippi, man, it is definitely a special place. It's definitely a special place. Um, it was the first church started by the Apostle Paul upon moving from Asia Minor and into Europe. Uh, that meant that the gospel jumped continents. All right, so just think for a second. That's a gigantic deal in the history of missions. All right? It went from Asia Minor to Europe for the first time. And so if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll probably remember the Macedonian call and the, and the uh, conversion of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. God gives Paul a dream. He sees a vision of a man calling him over to bring the gospel to them. And then he gets up from that, from that sleep and he heads off to share the gospel uh, and plant churches in northern Greece or Macedon for all you hip history nerds out there. But we also learn in Acts 16 verse 12 that Philippi is, quote, a leading city of the district and a Roman colony. And so what does that mean? 
Well, um, if you like Roman history at all, uh, Mark Antony and Octavian are chasing down all the folks that, who played a part in killing Julius Caesar, right? Uh, and so they're, they're hunting all these people down who played their role, and uh, they finally get to the last little bit of them in the city of Philippi. And there's this major battle that happens there in about 41, 42 BC, I think. Right? Uh, and they, and they, they absolutely decimate the city. And so you can't like you can't like break up these cities and, and, and not like rebuild them. And so they rebuild these cities and um, they, they fill these cities because cities need people. They fill these cities with a bunch of old retired army vets. They, need, they make it their new home. Guys who, hint, hint, have spent their entire lives and careers being loyal to Rome. Think that's going to come into play later? Yeah, maybe so. Uh, and then after that, after that, they gave everybody living in the city uh, a break from most of the taxes, uh, the Roman taxes, and, and on top of that, rights to own property that most of the other people living in the Roman Republic didn't have. And so it doesn't take much to imagine that Philippi was, a, was by a long way the most pro-Roman of all the non-Italian cities. They had a lot invested there, and there was a lot of things to celebrate. They literally had a long list of perks that no one else got. And this caused them, as you would probably suspect, to puff up their chest a little bit. If we wanted to bring a comparison into the modern day, Philippi was the really clean, rich suburb with the good tax rate, low crime, and great schools. They had a solid work ethic, but they... But man, they also had a good bit of privilege that was just kind of handed to them. In other words, Philippi was Bedford. And what's worse, they knew it. Oh, they knew it. They knew how much had been handed to them. And so everybody in the city just kind of walked around with a little bit of a swagger, man. They did. And, and the church at Philippi, man, they were in the same boat. Everything, everything was clean and uncontroversial. There, there weren't any major problems, at least on the surface. Everything was kind of buried underneath, right? Uh, there weren't any major theological errors that Paul had to address. In fact, he spends a big chunk of this letter at the end, uh, like, <laughs> like, it's like celebrating them. The only real kind of problem that they have in this letter is that Paul has to get onto a couple of ladies who are bickering about some stuff. The place wasn't exactly burning down. Like the letters he wrote to Corinth, the letters he wrote to, to, to the Galatia and Ephesus, man, he's got to deal with some pretty deep junk there. But that's not the case with Philippi. It was a quiet, little, healthy church. They had a long history of doing some good stuff. And they were even commended by Paul towards the end for financially supporting his work, even when a lot of other people bailed on him. They were the, the church that stepped up. They were the faithful ones. They were the ones that stood in the gap. There is a whole bunch going on at the church at Philippi to point to and pat themselves on the back about. And this is exactly, exactly where the danger lies. But we need to put in some work to help us understand exactly why. So look with me at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Paul says this, therefore, my beloved. All right, so let's call time out there. All right, so uh, any good Bible teacher is going to tell you, find out what the therefore is therefore, right? And so uh, back up a little bit. Think with me about what you know about uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, the first 11 verses of this chapter, Paul gives us what is probably the most well-known portion of this letter, what we often call the hymn of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, 
a thing to be grasped, but, ex- but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Like, like if you've spent any time in church at all, you've had somebody teach that text. It's an incredibly common, well-known, and very loved piece of scripture. Paul points them to Jesus, and he pretty much says, hey, you've got a lot of th- great things going on, but Jesus, a far mightier king than anything the Roman emperor would ever dream of being, Jesus did the exact opposite of puffing up his chest. That's his point. Privileged with all the glories of the heavenly throne room, Jesus instead emptied himself. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, we're told. He was obedient to the point of death. Yes, even death on a cross. We could say it this way. Jesus was eminently humble. And because of Jesus' humility, because of that humility, two absolutely massive things flow out of that. One, we're told that he is and he will be exalted forever. Paul tells us in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 2 that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus, is, that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're told that he is bestowed with a name that is greater, higher than every other name. It's through the Son's infinite humility that he deserves the right to be exalted forever. But listen, it's not only that Jesus is exalted. There's a a second reality that flows out of Jesus' humility, and we see that happening in the very next verse, verse 12. So look at it again. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so as a logical conclusion of Jesus' humility and exaltation, we are called to work on some stuff. That's what Paul's saying. We got some work to do. Paul starts out by commending the Philippian church yet again for their past faithfulness. We could go on and on and on about all the good things that they got going on here. There aren't any theological errors. There's no major sin in the camp. They're serving in good ways. Great job, church. But here's the catch. It's the dangerous part that we, that we mentioned earlier. Whenever you're dealing with sinful hearts, past faithfulness is not necessarily a guarantee for future faithfulness. It's not automatic like that, at least not for sinners, at least not for me. While they certainly have much to be proud of, and while it's good and right for Pastor Paul to commend them here for those things, every good pastor ought to celebrate the great things going on in their church. This is not a moment for acting like they got things figured out. Why not? Well, first of all, because God is the one who gets the credit for their faithfulness, not them. And we'll flesh out that reality a little bit more uh, later down the line. But, but secondly, because sin is always, and I really mean always, crouching at the door. It's always just over the horizon, ready to cause you harm. And those of you who are fighting off persistent sin in your heart and life, man, you know this reality intimately, don't you? You get it. It's always just right there on your heels. You know how close you are to that dangerous edge of the cliff. And listen, while I, while I would do everything in my power to call you to step a couple of feet away from the edge of that cliff, like just, just speaking as a pastor for a moment, I actually worry about you less than I worry about all the folks who don't think the cliff is there. 
who think that everything is safe. And so Paul says here, listen, this is important. In fact, it's, it's even more important now that I'm not there right beside you to walk with you through this stuff. So let's go. Let's, let's get to work on this stuff. There's, there's something going on here that ought to cause you to fear and tremble. There's something that you ought to take seriously about this. And so what is that thing? Your sin. Your indwelling unrighteousness. Ah, but Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. If you are a Christian, that answer is correct. He has. Absolutely. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. But condemnation and persistent presence are different things. They're different things. How many of us are walking sinless this morning? The answer is none of us. None of us. Not me. Not you. None of us. A work is still being done in us. And Paul says here, count sin as deadly serious and then treat it as such. Understand that, that there's a danger here. Understand the depth of, of your vulnerability to, to fall back into that mess. And let's get to work here. Well, okay, but, but how? I mean, what do we do about this? What, what's the next step? You root out unrighteousness like it's something that you're actually scared of. Something you actually fear. And you treat it as if it's something that you desperately need to deal with in a hurry. That's the answer. You keep digging it out as if your well-being actually depends on it. You ever been in a situation where you were made very aware of how little control you actually had? You, you found yourself in a moment where you had this clear realization that circumstances were way bigger than you and you weren't able to do anything about it. You were just kind of along for the ride and at the mercy of the moment. You ever been in a situation like that? Um, so the first year that Katie and I were married, uh, we saved up some money and we found a really good deal and we took an anniversary trip, a long anniversary trip to Rome, to, uh, to Italy. Uh, we, got, we got to spend a week there. Um, that's not something that we're going to get to do a lot on a pastor's salary. Uh, it just not in our future, all right? Uh, but we figured out how to make it work that time. And so we got on an airplane and man, we went. And we had a really, really good time while we were there. We didn't have kids yet, so it was extra special, all right? But we loved that trip. It was a fun time, all right? And we did all the standard weird touristy stuff that you're supposed to do. And we looked like a couple of dumb Americans who had never been, a, you know, to anywhere of significance before, all right? We did several walking tours. We went to the Vatican. We tossed coins in the Trevi Fountain and all that kind of stuff. We had a little picnic on the lawn in front of the Colosseum. I, I felt all kinds of classy, right? And you can also, like after we're done here, uh, scroll back through Facebook and find a, an old picture of me, uh, like pretending to climb up the side of the Coliseum wall. Yeah, we're those kind of tourists. Yeah, yeah, I, I wrote a letter to the city of Rome apologizing me, uh, but I think they ghosted me. Um, they may not let me back. Um, we had a great time, man. Great time. It was a fun trip, but... There's also this one other part uh, that wasn't so fun. Um, so we were riding around in the city on their metro, their subway system, and there was this moment where Katie and I got separated. It was super crowded. People were pressing on each other. And so I pushed through to step on the train, and my shy, demure wife, um, she second-guessed it a little bit. Uh, and so the doors closed, uh, and she did not get on. And then the train took off fast really faster than I expected. Um, this was before iPhones. This was before international calling plans or anything like that. We had zero way of contacting each other right now. 
It just didn't work. We, we had nothing. About a year before this moment, I stood in front of her and all of our family and friends, and I, and I looked her in the eyes, and I promised to be the one to protect her. I promise to be the one to provide for her and, and make sure she's safe and take care of her. I promise to be the one to help her flourish in all of life. But here we are now, and I left her standing on a subway platform in a foreign country where neither of us spoke the language. Great job, Stephen. And oh yeah, um, we didn't have any pre-discussed plans as to what to do if we were to get separated. And I was holding all the money, and I was holding the train tickets, right? And so uh, you know, I was trying to guard against pickpockets and stuff like that, so I had everything on me. And so I left her standing there without even the ability to get back to the hotel on her own. She's just kind of stuck there. Scared? Scared is not a weighty enough word for that moment for me. It was more like a terrified haze. And so what followed after that was about an hour of me frantically searching the next station, waiting there, see if she came on the next train, or the train after that, or the train after that. And when she didn't show up on those trains, I doubled back to the station that we started from, and I waited there, but she wasn't on that platform either, so I waited for a couple of trains to pass through there. And so after a long while of me finally giving up and saying, okay, we'll just figure out a way to get back on the train later, I exited the train station, went back up to the service, and found her crying at the entrance. My wife is a really smart, incredibly capable woman. And I, I pretend sometimes like I'm as smart as her. It's not true, but I, I, I try my best. We both spent a lot of time traveling different parts of the world, but man, I was young and I was naive and I still carried a lot of that young man swagger, that, that in invincibility that ought to be kicked out of me. And so going into that trip, I didn't even give it a moment's thought of how to protect and provide for her. Uh, the one I made all those promises to, I didn't, even, I didn't even bother. But then I had an excruciating moment of not being in control, and I promise you, oh, I promise you, I will do everything in my power to make sure that that moment never happens again. Ever. And I'm not saying I can fix every problem. I'm a mere man, right? Uh, so I can't fix everything. But oh, we have pre-discussed plans now. If, if we're in a strange place, strange city, and communication is hard, you best believe that Stephen has some ideas and Stephen has taken extra precautions. I was taught a very clear lesson while racing around on some Roman subway stations that things can fall apart fast. And they can fall apart even faster if I don't understand the gravity of dealing with something before it's a problem. And so now, now I go out of my way to guard my family against those things. I can't prevent everything. I can't. I can't. I'm, I'm too small for that. But I promise you, I will be faithful to stand my post. My post. A fearful moment knocked some sense into me on that day and forever changed the way I approach things when I'm traveling with my family. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That fear that he's talking about there, it's a sober, clear-headed understanding that you have a real enemy in this game. Right? It's not some make-believe boogeyman off in the corner. This is not a drill, soldier. This is real. We're live here. Right? You understand the danger that's in front of you. You count sin as deadly serious, and then you treat it as if, well, you know, any other deadly serious thing. You get to work rooting it out desperately because you want every trace of it gone from your existence. You want it out of your presence forever. 
You take measures that, that all those who don't know what you know yet, who don't understand how serious of an issue this is, you take measures that they think are ridiculous, that they think are extreme and too far and maybe a little out of bounds. But because of what Jesus has done for you, you now see your sin correctly. Your eyes have been open, your attention is fixated, and your calling is clear. I mean, think just for a moment, whatever sin you're staying, still hanging on to today. Uh, for some of you, it's, it's various forms of addiction. For some of you, it's a sexual thing. For some of you, it's a desperate desire to, to be liked, to be seen in a specific way, whether that's as the hard worker or the good neighbor or the, or the Christian leader, whatever that is. For others, it's an idolatry issue. You chase after that thing at great cost to what God has actually called you to chase after, actually called you to pursue. Whatever your issue is, hear me clearly. Jesus would call you out of that thing this morning. He would call you to see it as deadly serious. And he would say that it's worthy of your fear and it's worthy of your trembling. And so work out your salvation this morning like there's actually something on the line here. Get to work and do something about it. Root it out and put it to death as if there's an eternal prize promised on the back half of this thing. Oh wait, yeah, there is. Oh, but that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah, really hard work, too. Really hard work. And I'll just be honest with you. There's some times I'd rather not fight. Seriously. There, there are some times that when it feels easier to give up. There are times when I can't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And I, I stop caring for a little bit. You ever been there? In fact, the Bible seems to paint the picture that we'll probably wrestle with this stuff until God takes us home. This is a whole life work. Theologians call it sanctification, the slow process of making you look more and more and more like your king. This is hard. Anybody telling you otherwise is lying to you. It's hard. And the stakes are high. And if, if you're wondering if there's good news anywhere in this, it's actually found in the very next verse. We only read verse 12, and we stopped mid-sentence in doing so. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, church family, so when Jesus calls you to root out your sin and put your sin to death, he is not for one second, not for one moment, sitting on a far away throne, frustrated that you haven't figured things out yet. That's not what he's doing. He is with you in the fight. He's fighting for you. Remember earlier when I said the Philippian church doesn't get to take the credit for their faithfulness that God did? Yeah, it's no different for you and me. It's no different for you and me. It's through his strength that we fight our sin. It's through his faithfulness that we have the promise of success in this stuff. And here's the really great news about all this. He is infinitely faithful. Infinitely faithful. Does anybody doubt his ability to fight? Does anybody think that he's somehow overwhelmed by your sin or outsmarted by your sin? Does anybody think he's ever outmaneuvered by you or anybody else? Follower of Jesus, he willingly died to pay for your sin. He saw every ounce of it and went to the cross 
anyways. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I know, but like, like, <laughs> I, I, but I let him down so often, right? I fail in this. I stumble in this over and over again. I'm sure he's getting tired of this mess. Yeah, yeah, I think that sometimes too. I'm in the same boat. But then Paul has the audacity to say that God works in you for his good pleasure. Good pleasure. See, the Bible teaches that God actually delights in bringing you from your sin and into Christ-likeness. He enjoys the work. It's like a weird hobby for him. You know that weird old saying, you, you do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life? Turns out, in God's case, that's actually kind of true. He cannot grow weary. He will not grow weary. And so press in and trust his continuing work in you. Get to work rooting it out. And watch what he does with it. Watch what he does. God didn't merely work in you past tense. Yes and amen, that's a glorious reality to separate. We're told that he also, though, joyfully and current, and is joyfully currently working in you. Present tense as well. Yes, you have been saved, but salvation is also coming to fruition. Saved and being saved. Church family, the gospel, the lifelong and Yes, sometimes painful work of God to joyfully make you look more and more like him. The gospel is a present reality. A present reality. So spin the diamond this week and marvel at his goodness to you. Not just in the past, but today, this morning. Not just the things he had, not just the things he did long ago. Not just the things he has done, but uh, not just for the promises of the future. We'll get to that in a later point in this series. But today... Today, he walks with you even now, calling you out of your sin, calling you out of your danger, calling you to fight in his strength to put that sin to death, to fear it and fight it, not for your glory, but for his, for his glory. If you're watching this and you're already a follower of Jesus, that's, that's your response this morning, right? It's pretty clear. You seek out your sin, you root it out, and you deal with it because you're aiming at something better. And you've got, and man, you've got a ringer in your corner. Do something with it. What actions do you need to take today to treat your sin as the deadly serious thing that it is? What are the practical steps? Yeah, those who don't understand its seriousness yet, those who don't understand what you understand are going to think that you've gone too far. They're going to think that you're crazy. Been there. Been there. But the simple question emerges out of this is this. Which is the better eternal play? Which option brings you a more eternal reward? What does it look like for you to see your sin correctly and treat it as such? What real world steps can you take this morning to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a, that's a time for you to respond to God's word and actually put action to that response. Maybe you need to respond in some other kind of way this morning. Maybe you need to uh, be obedient in baptism. Maybe you need to uh, join this church family. Maybe you need to say yes to the call of missions that God is laying out in front of you. If you're watching this this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you're hanging around with us. I don't think that's an accident though. I think God's in that. I think God is working in you in this moment. So hear me say this. Your response is not to try a little harder to be holy. 
You can't defeat your sin on your own. You're in over your head. What you need is Jesus. You need to know him. You need to love him and trust him alone for salvation. By default, your sin separates you from God, but Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living, and he died on the cross as a substitute to pay the penalty for your sin. Now that he's risen from the dead, he calls on you this morning to repent of your sin, trust him in faith, and call on him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that this morning. Yeah, even through a computer screen. God is big enough and good enough to work through those things. You've, you've heard his gospel, now respond to his gospel. The call is on you. Normally I stand down front here and I call people to, to come forward with their decisions. We can't do that today, but listen, that doesn't mean that we can't talk. We can talk. Give me a call. Jump in the, the pastor's Q&A in a little bit. Schedule a physical meeting with me, with, with me and we'll just yell at each other across the church parking lot. I'll talk to you. Whatever it takes, I'd love to walk you through this morning what that response of repentance and faith looks like. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. Let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for... Yes, the past work of the gospel and all the things that we get to celebrate that, about that, but also thank you so much for the present work of the gospel. There's so many things I can point to that you have rescued me out of, things that you have changed in my heart and life over the years, but I, I also know my heart well enough to know that there's a lot more to work on. There's a lot more that needs to be done, and you have called me to Go after it. Would you humble me before you so that I could see my sin correctly? Would you help me see the, the danger and the pain and the brokenness they produce? And would you give me a holy distaste for it? And I know that there, there are those of us in our, in, in our church family, I myself, I, I know that there are those of us who, as we begin dealing with these sin issues in your strength, we're going to have folks around us who don't get it, who don't think it's worth the energy, who maybe even think we're, we're rooting out a good thing. Would you give us strength and patience in that moment? And would you change their heart too? Would you call them to see sin as it is? Father, in every breath that we take, we need you. You are the one who gives strength. You are the one who provides. Yes, in the past. Yes, for today. And in every breath in the future. And so we need you to continue working in us. Help us walk faithfully. Help us find our rest in what you have done and are doing for us. God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know in this moment? Would you save today? Would you call people to yourself? as we respond to 
what you've shown us in the scriptures, would you would you call us to repentance? Would you give us rest? And would you send us out faithfully? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.